Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Can't do this anymore. I'm 24. Like, this ain't what my life's about. This ain't how it's meant to be. So I just screamed at this guy, like, get me out of this. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Changes. Hello, you lot. Um, I'm speaking to you on the eve of International Women's Day. And to highlight International Women's Day on changes I wanted to speak to someone who represents a group of very marginalized and often overlooked women and that is a woman called Kerry Douglas. Kerry is a single mother of three children two of which she looks after full-time. She is a certified substance abuse counsellor and is studying for a degree in psychology. Now the reason why I want to speak to Kerry is because Kerry was homeless for many many years and It's women's experience of homelessness that we're talking about in this week's episode. Before I tell you more about Kerry, let me just break down a little bit about homelessness for women in general. The average age of death for women sleeping rough or in emergency accommodation is 41 years old. That is four years lower than the average age of death for a man sleeping rough. Women sleeping rough are at much greater risk of physical and sexual violence than men. They're more likely to be struggling with complex trauma, mental health issues, physical health, domestic abuse and or substance misuse. Some women are coerced into not using contraceptives by partners and some are permanently separated from children, causing unimaginable grief, shame and guilt, causing them to be alienated from the health and support services that they need so much. A lot of women who experience homelessness are so vulnerable that they have to hide from harm. But hiding from harm also means that women are hidden from help. So even though there is statistics out there, it is constantly reinforced that they are not accurate because no one has a real idea of just how many women out there are suffering. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of highlighting and supporting women who experience homelessness. And my guest, Kerry, is going to really, really help us get a real true and honest picture of what some women have to go through. So Kerry's life up to her mid-twenties was unfathomably difficult. She was put in care aged 11 and became officially homeless at the age of 17. She had to battle physical abuse and severe substance abuse. The fact that she's alive and thriving today is testament to her Herculean strength and determination. And I'm going to let her tell you her story. But just to say the biggest turning point for her was when she met some brilliant outreach staff at the St. Mungo's charity. St. Mungo's is a charity um, that helps every stage of homelessness. But it was Kerry's experience with the St. Mungo's outreach teams that really helped her to learn how to love herself and to help herself. 
the outreach teams go out and meet people who are sleeping rough and I did a few shifts with them as research for this episode one early in the morning and one late at night and uh, really learned what it is that they do it involves a qualified outreach worker and a volunteer going around the city and being the first point of support for vulnerable rough sleepers they work to build trust with the individuals and then help them eventually to engage with support services now the staff that I witnessed were exceptionally good at this it takes a lot of empathy and savvy and courage and also the bit that I ended up admiring the most about them was just their patience and determination when it comes to the bureaucracy around actually housing a rough sleeper it's emotionally grueling I was kind of in awe of the outreach workers I worked with. Before we get started, this is a hard-hitting episode, as you would probably guess. There's a lot of serious, heavy stuff being spoken about. And if you have any concerns about the content, do go check out the show notes for all of the details. But let's begin. I started by asking Kerry Douglas what her family life was like when she was a child. Family life wasn't great. I was passed around the family like a hot potato, you could say, because I have ADHD and my environment and peer surroundings, shall we say, wasn't great. I became very hard to handle, shall we say, like my behaviour wasn't good. I was very hyperactive, but I was acting out a lot and people just washed their hands with me rather than trying to support me on how to change that. So it wasn't great. I felt really isolated from my family growing up. I felt like I wasn't wanted or or loved by my family. And, and who were your family? Mainly my mother was meant to be my sole carer because she had bipolar and other mental health issues she struggled so a lot of the time my nan would have a residency order but when I hit 11 I went into foster care and then I got lost in the system I I used to run away a lot and ended up with a different foster care every couple of weeks okay so we'll get to that in a bit but just back to your young childhood where did you grow up I started off in Newcastle But like I said, my mum's got mental health issues. She was born in London. So we would just go between Newcastle and London quite regularly. So like at least once a year, we'd be traveling up and down. So we were never settled. We never, ever settled. Like when I say we, I have my sister. We'd wake up sometimes and not know where we were. There wasn't any stability anywhere within family or surroundings. I can't say like where my home was when I was younger. I can't say where my hometown was or anything like that because I really don't feel like I had that. You said in answer to your change question, change was ingrained in me. It was kind of all you knew. Yeah, like even now I'm stable and I've got my children and stuff. I can't have the living room the Mm. same for, for more than like say a couple of weeks. I have to change things because as I grew up, that's what I thought life was meant to be about. Just change, change, change. And I struggle if I don't have change. Hmm. Interesting. Apart from being used to change and conditioned to change, how did it affect you as a child, do you think? It was explosive, really, because I believe that all that change and unstable unsettlement and everything, that's what moulded me into a young teenager that couldn't settle down anywhere and instead of facing problems, decided to run away from them and found herself sleeping on the streets at 13 years old. So I mm. I think if I had had more of a stable, settled surrounding I would have been more stable as a in a mentality source because I've got ADHD as well and other like mental health issues 
that change contributed in a negative way. We were going from one school to another school every few weeks, having to make new friends, having to settle down, blah, 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 to be uprooted again. And that I, I just think that that sort of thing has a really negative impact on kids. And if you move around a lot and then, you know, you have some sort of stability in your family of like consistency in terms of emotional care, then that might be more easy to get through but if you don't have that then you have the double whammy of instability everywhere right i think that's the, that's the key there consistency because it's like even as parents i mean i see because i try and overcompensate for my life with my children i've been a bit soft in some areas and it's and i've been inconsistent and i've seen the impact that's had you know like and it's like I need to be mm. consistent here because if I don't, it's going to get worse, you know? And, and I just think in anything, consistency is that key, isn't mm. it? Mm. It's knowing where you stand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about being taken into care at the age of 11. What were the circumstances of that? What do you remember about that time? So my mum had just lost it. Um, my sister didn't get taken into care. It was just me. So I felt completely... Was your sister older or younger? She's 18 months older than me. You know, it was very hard for me because I thought they don't want me, but they want her, you know, and it was always a case of nobody wanted me. So then when I went into care, I rebelled and I was like, well, they just, these people only want me because they're getting paid for it. And now my mom doesn't want me. So I kept running away thinking that one day they'd give up and just take me back to my mum's, but they didn't. Mm. Did you still see your mom though occasionally when you were in care or no? Yeah, but it was always volatile, very, very volatile. It always ended up in a case of I'd be turfed out and told to go back to my foster placement. And it just, yeah, it was, it was hard. You mentioned the first time you slept on the streets being 13 years old. You ran away from your foster home, right? Yeah. So when I first went into foster care, there was this one placement and they felt like they were family they they loved me and they had all the time for me and then like after about a year just over a year the team around the family with my mum had almost come to an end so I went home and like it didn't last very long I was back in care within a few weeks but when I went back they had other children with them that had special needs mm -hmm. and it really you know they they couldn't give me that same attention and that because obviously it's the same as when you have another baby it's not deliberate pushing out is it I mean I see that nowadays but at the time yeah. because everybody had always pushed me away pushed me away pushed me away instead of loving me so when the girls came along I mean I love them I'm still in touch with them today all of them they're like my family mm. still do you know what I mean but where my mindset was was nobody wants me it's another person that sure. doesn't want me. So then I started to run away and I became 13, coming into 13. Like, you're going through changes anyway, aren't you? You know, like hormonal course, and stuff yeah. like that. And the ADHD was really kicking in, you know, because of the rejection and the abandonment, it was, it was fueling a need to get attention, but I was getting the attention all the wrong ways. And then I, I would bunk off school, go up the West End mm -hmm. and hang out up the West End, thinking I was clever. And I also, I was a bit of a dreamer. I still am a bit of a dreamer, to be fair. But, you know, I'd be like, oh, if I see famous people, I'm going to be famous. And, you know, just, mm. I was very rebellious. And then I, I found these homeless people and they just seemed to be just like me. They just 
had the same sort of life upbringing or or like feeling of abandonment and insecurity and I just felt you know like when you feel drawn to people and you just feel these are the sort of people that I'm meant to be around well I mean some of them were not much older than me some of them were like 17 18 boys there's mainly men I have to admit the thing is although there are women on the streets they're mainly hidden or in hotels or something because like they have to get into sex work or whatever so most of the people you see on the streets are men but you do have women out there it was just like a family though there was like a street mom there was street dad there was uncles cousins whatever you just it was a community of people and did you feel safe in that community absolutely i felt safer in that community than i felt in my actual genuine community and why do you think that was? Because they, they gave a toss about me and they didn't just, they got me. They understood me. Right. I felt loved. Like, I felt protected. Mm. Like, when I was mm. 11, my mum gave me a pound and told me to jog on and go around Childline. Childline had me, like, literally on um, first name basis, I think. Right. Yeah, so then I just felt drawn to these people. But they were the people that had come from Cardboard City. Do you know, like back in the day, Cardboard City was where the IMAX theatre is in Waterloo. And um, yeah. they'd been turfed on by um, Tony Blair. But then these were the people that I found were caring. They, I mean, honestly, I have to emphasise now, if you stop and talk to a homeless person, you'll see that they are just like normal people. Like, well, they are normal people. They are, but their intellect, their... Um, some of the conversations you have with them, you're like, wow, they weren't just people that were thrown aside. They were actual people that I was learning from and and people that were showing me how to live. That was my environment. That was my family. I, I was more stable on the streets than I was off of the streets, if that makes sense. Because I'm used to change. Yeah, yeah. So when did you decide to move? And what were the circumstances, again, of you moving full-time onto the streets? So... When I was 17, I used to run away to the fun fair every time it was in season. And um, by the end of the season, I came back and I went back to social services like I did every time. And then they was like, well, we haven't got any more placements for you because you've literally gone through every single one. And um, that was it. They had to close the case on me. When I look back, I was not easy. I was a minx and I know I burnt so many bridges and there were resources available at the time but I chose not to see them because I was rebelling, sticking my finger up at them all. Do you know what I mean? So when they said case closed sort of thing, that made me feel like like, I've definitely been abandoned. So then I went full in, sleeping on the streets, like under the Charmcross train station. You know, you can't even get down there now. It makes me sit, they've closed it all off. I mean, I know it's not attractive, but, you know, it's warm and it's sheltered for them to sleep and they've closed it all off. But we all used to congregate down there. There used to be like 20 of us just all huddled together and um I started taking crack I started getting delirious off the crack and because of my mental health connections at St Martin's they sent me to the hospital they put me on nebulizers and stuff you know like ventilation and stuff and as soon as I started acting a bit normal they discharged me back to the streets without any follow-up without any aftercare again I felt abandoned So I went back to my home place in Newcastle to stay with my sister for a little while. Well, this is a new borough of social services, so now they can help me. Right, technically, yeah. Yes. 
it was a fresh start, they had resources there. The thought would be that they would then use the resources in that borough, but instead they sent me to the housing options on my own. Someone who wasn't really in the mindset mentally to be able to handle that stuff on their own. Sure. And then the housing put me into a temporary B&B, you know, like a temporary housing sort of thing. I wasn't in there long either. I think it was about six or eight weeks. They gave me a tenancy, my first tenancy, which was a two bedroom flat. That went all wrong after a few, like I set fire to the kitchen because I was um, sat peeling potatoes in the living room watching Tracy Beaker while I'd had the chip pan on the hob in the kitchen with the lid on it. So when I opened the lid, it goes boom, nearly in my face. And then I run straight over to my sister's house, past the phone in the hallway to tell my sister my house is on fire. And she said, well, if you run the fire again, I'm like, no, I'm telling you. And she was like, well, like, hello, so she's ringing the fire brigade. I realise my hamster's in the living room, so I run back over to get my hamster. This is the mentality of what they're given a flat mm, to. Mm. When the, the flat gets abandoned, then they say, oh, well, we're not going to help you anymore because you made yourself intentionally homeless. Well, hang on a minute. You, you kind of set me up to fail there. Yeah, you weren't equipped. Like completely. You weren't equipped to have a home. No. Yeah. Mentally, not at all. Do you know mm. what I mean? And they knew that. Mm. Yeah, so I felt let down again. I think I might have actually gone travelling with the fair then because I always say right. oh, there's a little blank where I can't remember what happened between this time and that time. But I remember I was on the fair on my 18th birthday, so I think that's what happened. And when you're on the fair, do you get paid? £30 a day. Okay, so you get accommodation and you get work on the fair. Yeah, so you sleep in a trailer. You get yeah. a trailer, Yeah. a caravan. Wow. And what were those memories like for you? Are they happy memories? I loved it. <laughs> it was perfect. It was like the, the foster carers used to send the police all the time to the to the fairgrounds when it was in Blackheath and Dance and Park in Bexley Heath. They always used to know if it was fairground season and I'd run away, that's where I would be. They would come and find me. Right. I was working on the Dodgems, the Waltzers. And would you see the same people every time? Yeah, it's again another community, another family. Right. Um, like at the end of the season when the fairground goes into hibernation, you'll go to one big yard. It's like a traveller park and it's got all the fancy yeah. American trailers and you'd be on the yard together and the, the main gaffer's wife would make you all a plate of dinner each. It was like family, family again. Mm. That's what I wanted and that's what I got. But then it didn't end well because they can be a bit male chauvinistic as well because I was one of the only women on the fair it was like I'll get your boobs out for the lads and do this and do that and if I pay you a little bit extra will you do this and it's like oh so I ended up leaving in the end I came back to Newcastle and then they put me in the same bed and breakfast that well, it was like a and b that they put me in I was only in there for two nights and I took an overdose Oh my God. I just had enough. I just felt like, and even my birth family, they were all in Newcastle. I just felt lonely. I felt like nobody really cared. Mm. I'd went to, back to social services and they sent me back to housing options and house options just put me back into this no support accommodation. Like it was just a bed, basically. There was a night warden and it was a night warden that actually found me when I was there sobbing when she came in, like just taking loads of pills. So they sectioned me for about six weeks and they did. They were saying, oh, it's for attention, it's for attention. I'm like, you do not realise. They, they just couldn't get their head around the fact that this girl isn't rebelling. It, well, she is rebelling, but she's got problems that you don't want to ask her how to deal with. Like, I've got demons at 17. I, I, I 
when I was 13, I took so many pills, I, they had to pump my stomach, but nobody listened. Nobody's actually asking you what's wrong. Yeah, yeah so it, it just deteriorated and deteriorated. And then they gave me my next flat. I, again, I, I was 19, 18, well, 18 I was, and I fell pregnant, I had a miscarriage. And I, it devastated me because all, like I say, all I've ever wanted is family, all I've ever wanted is love. So when I found out I was pregnant, I was over the moon, I was finally going to get to be a mum, maybe that would sort me out, mm. settle me down. Um, obviously I had a miscarriage and it broke me and I didn't get any support of that. Nobody would console me or anything. I was alone and I was up at four o'clock in the morning, like painting walls, distracting myself and crying with my niece's little doll in my arms, just sobbing for hours. And I remember mum even said something to me like it wasn't even a baby, something along them lines. And it was heartbreaking, you know, because no, it wasn't just a baby. It was everything I've ever craved my whole life. started going off the rails again and my mum had moved back up to Newcastle for some reason and she'd gone into hospital into the same psychiatric unit that I'd gone into when they sectioned me and we got kind of close and I I don't know I think when it comes to mental health me and my mum can relate and that is probably right. the thing it's a weird weird thing is probably the only thing that connects us we got close and then she got a flat and then I spent a lot of time with her at her flat she got asked if she wanted to go back to London to run a pub for a few days over, over Christmas. I was like, oh, I want to come, I want to come. Like, I want to go West End, see all, all my, my family on the streets, sort of thing, like reunion. So we went down, and when I went there, I met a man who was begging outside on the Strand, and I felt sorry for him. I felt like I could save him, I could help him. He looked so sad, poppy dog eyes and stuff like that. And then when I was going back to Newcastle, I was like, no, I really want to come back and save this man. So I did. I went back. I got him. When I first arrived to get him, he was coming out of a phone box with a needle sticking out of his groin. He was a heroin addict. thought nothing of it. I, I can get him off this. He can come back to my flat. That's what I need, someone to be there with me so I'm not lonely. And he can, like, have a place where he's away mm. from all that. So he doesn't know the dealers, he doesn't know this, that, the other. Almost immediately, it was sliding backwards. He found where people were and stuff like that. And then I found out I was pregnant with his baby. Over the moon, couldn't wait. I was absolutely buzzing. That's all I've ever wanted. Yeah, I've got my little family. We've got a little flat. All right, it's not the best flat. But I had it all planned out in my head. It's going to be perfect. Literally, days after I found out I was pregnant, he got his gyro and left me standing on the corner of the high street to go and get a, a coach back to London. I let him burn off some steam with what he was doing. And then I said, come on, we've got to go back now. It's time to settle down. So we went back, but I'd lost my flat due to abandonment because we're running around London doing what he has to do. Social services were like, oh, we're going to get, we're going to come and take this baby. We got arrested one day for shoplifting in, in Whitley Bay and he went to prison for three or four weeks and I got let go on a caution because it was my first adult offence. So I went back to social services and told them what had happened. They sent me to the hospital for a maternity checkup. And then I was admitted into like the, is it the prenatal? Prenatal. 
Yeah. So I was admitted into there for the remainder of my pregnancy. I was doing the right thing. I was having, I was on methadone. I had my little boy, Jack. He was like, it was the most amazing feeling in the world. But when I had him, there was a problem with the epidural. It put a hole in my spine, which had started leaking spinal fluids to my brain. And I mean, I was in so oh much my agony. God, Kerry, that sounds like agony. It was, I couldn't move. I was really in a bad way. I was left lying in, you know what it's like when you have a baby. I wasn't bathed, I wasn't shoved, I couldn't get there. They, like my ex was having screaming fights with the doctors because of the fact they were leaving me in pools of blood and stuff like that. And, and it was horrible. But because I was a heroin addict and someone that was so rebellious to services, they didn't really give monkeys about me. It was the whole thing with they couldn't wait to sterilise the bed when I was 17 at Guy's and St Thomas's because they wanted it for someone who wasn't homeless. Do you know what I mean? It's like the, the services, because because of that stigmatic label on you, they don't really care. So here I am in my bed, I'm asking them for pain relief, but they don't want to give it to me. They finally gave me morphine which was helping but I, it was that bad i had two spinal taps you know like they had to take blood from one part yeah. of my body and put it into this hole in my spine to close it up i can't even paint that picture and it's not because i want people mm. to feel sorry for me it's just the fact that it's disgraceful that i was allowed to get into that in the first place i was on this methadone and i was on morphine for the for the pain of this Whereas my ex, he was still using, he was going, getting yeah. his drugs, he was coming up to the hospital to see me and his son, but he was going in the toilets to have a hit. I didn't even get up, I couldn't lift my head on off, and so I didn't know what he was doing. And then one day, the, the nurses came around in the morning to do the observations, and they said to me, what's this, Kerry? And I just looked up, and they're holding a needle, like a syringe, and I'm like... Uh, what does it look like sort of thing you know because I was in shock so like an idiot I said oh it's mine and it wasn't it was his and you said it was yours in order to protect him yes that, basically yeah. so basically my intention was if I say it's mine everything will be all right he'll still yeah. be able to come up to the hospital every day to see us and stuff like that I didn't think of the consequences yeah. that, that I'm going to get the backlash instead and that I'm going to get arrested for possession and that I'm mm. going to get taken down to the police station covered in blood soiled clothes and not able to walk on medication. I'm the one that gets discharged from the hospital and told that I'm not allowed to see our little boy without security guards present where he stands and watches the whole thing in the corner doesn't even stand in and take responsibility. Oh my God, And then Kerry. goes into hiding. So I was like, again, once again, abandoned. I've lost my boy, I've lost everything. And Kerry, so just clarify what happened with Jack. Did they say you weren't allowed to have him at that yeah. point? Mm -hmm. That was it. They weren't going, there was no options whatsoever. They were taking right. it because the thing is as well, there was a child protection meeting for Jack and um, the social worker sat there and told the whole meeting that I was lying about the pregnancy and that um, it never really happened and it was for attention. Like, do you know what I mean? And so I just felt mm. so betrayed by all services. So then when I'm going through this, when I got arrested for the possession of the needle that they found and I had no one to turn to.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We ended up sleeping at the back of um, Gateshead High Street for a couple of nights. I found him in the end. He was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He still didn't take the blame though or take accountability for his actions. He was just like, should we go and score? So we'd go and score and then that was the end of that. I was mentally in a, a bad way. I could have quite easily probably jumped off the time bridge where my mind was at. If I had stayed on them streets any longer, I probably would have done. So we represented at this place, it was like a charity. It wasn't a statutory service. It was a private charity that works with homeless people. And they put us in another temporary B&B thing. That was in the October come Christmas, first Christmas without me. I was just like, no, I need to get away from here. So we went to London to get away for a few days and we never came back. That was it. We just fell into crack, heroin and homelessness. So you had four years in London on the streets. Yeah, and it was horrible but it was, it felt necessary. Right. It felt like I deserved this. Like, this is where I should have always stayed. Um, I'd been treated like a rat all my life. Why not live like one sort of thing? And I began to resent Paul because he had made the one thing I'd ever wanted to go away. I got more and more involved in drugs and I basically left him when he went into prison for a couple of weeks on a warrant. And I started sleeping in Piccadilly on my own. The relationship with Paul was very violent and abusive as well. If I didn't make the money to get the gear, he'd give me a punch in the eye or fat lip or whatever. I'd just get proper writhed all over. I was always the the moneymaker. I had the young face and the men wanted to do things. And um, Mm. I'd get people coming up to me saying like, business, business. But I didn't do business I just took their money and told them to jog when I was underage even when I wasn't underage so I was prime money maker and if I didn't make the money I'd had hell to pay basically. So when you went and you left him and you were on your own what is life like on the streets as a woman on her own solo? Hard it is hard it's scary between the Waterstones and Fortnum and Mason, that was my little strip. Everybody knew me. Like I'd go in the church during the day and have a little kip on the back and stuff like that. You know, so I was safe. I felt safe, but it was still like if I stepped off of that turf onto Piccadilly, like Circus, and go onto like Shaftesbury Avenue, then it was danger. You've got pimps there waiting to see the young girls step onto that turf to be like, well, I'm claiming you. Or we, I used to sleep on Jermaine Street where the Waterstones is, this big doorway just in between yeah. the alleyway between St. James's Church and Waterstones. And 
people used to wee on us, you know, people saw us there and they used to wee on us, they didn't care. So that is a repetitive groundhog day, you know, and just effing and blinding and getting woken up for business by people. And it's just, yeah, it's not a nice life. Hmm. So what was the catalyst to you wanting to try and help yourself out of that life? Rock bottom. It just got to a point of, I can't live like this anymore. Like I'm going days without sleep. I'm going days without food and I'm taking more substances than you, you can imagine, you know? And it's like, I can't do this anymore. I'm 24. Like this ain't what my life's about. This ain't how it's meant to be. So I just screamed at the sky, like, get me out of this. And um, I don't know if it was because I hit rock bottom or if it's because God is real and he got me out of it. I don't, I don't know, like, but I know that my determination changed and my, my barriers started dropping. So I was starting to trust services again. And then that is when I met the amazing woman who now is the director of outreach at St Mungo's, so CAF. And she worked in the hostel, Look Ahead Hostel, and so did two other ladies, Liam and Lucy. They, I call them my dream team because they are what helped get out of that mindset because they, they loved me. They actually loved me. What did they do? How did they change how you felt about yourself? They loved me. They showed me that I was worth more than what I believed. They showed me that I did deserve to be loved and I did deserve to be in a bed, I used to just be like, nope, nope, nope. Cause I always thought like, it's a job, it's not compassion. Just doing this for a paycheck to pay your own bill sort of thing. But then these three ladies, they came at the angle, when you're ready, Kerry, tell us what you want. That's all I needed to hear. Like, what do you want? Mm. What do you need? You know, and- so it's giving you agency. It's giving you agency. It's kind of, and it's asking you to think about what you want, which you probably hadn't been doing much. No one ever asked yeah. me. Yeah. Yes. So, but the thing is, it wasn't just that. It was with me. I like to test boundaries. Yeah. When new people come along, I'm very. I'm, it's not that I'm shy. I'm very restrained. I'm watching behaviors. I'm watching. Are these people gonna let me down? You know, it's like I overanalyze, sure. and it's part of because of where I've come from and the things I've witnessed as a child, etc. And I will throw things out there as deliberate bombs just to wait to say like, well, I'm going to hurt you before you get hurt me. Watch, if I do this, watch you disappear. They didn't, they didn't buy it. They just like, I slid down the door one day, crying my eyes out. Kath, she's amazing. It's like she slid down the door the other side crying with me because she knew my potential and because she loved me and she knew that I was just damaged and they needed to be fixed mentally, emotionally, and all that came with it. And the fact that that was 13 years ago, well, we're looking at nearly 14 years ago now, and then three ladies are still there for me to this day. Like, it was love. It was genuine love. So you got consistency. Yeah. You got consistency for the first time in your life. Yeah. They added empathy and compassion and love into the mix. Even when I used to tell them to F off, I know them now personally, like they're like rooting for me now. And it's, I'm so sorry, I'm such a bitch to you, you know, <laughs> because they are Yeah, but it's it's empathy, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's understanding. It's looking at it from your side and, you know, knowing that you've had knock after knock after knock. So obviously you're not going to trust people. Yeah, exactly. You've had to learn not to trust people. You have to reverse everything you've learned. And that's it. You're conditioned to, to think people are not going to treat you well. Yeah. So why would you think anything else? It makes total sense. Yeah. 
he met these three, the dream team. What was the, you know, looking back at that time, was there a moment that you remember where you thought, I think I'm going to make it out of here? To be honest, right, so it was a bit rocky with that whole since that yeah, meeting sure. because um, I attempted recovery and then I got a diagnosis of HIV, which set me back a little bit. I went through a bit of chaotic but then it came mm. back round. I went back to Newcastle for a little while and I got just came completely off of everything, detoxed off of methadone, heroin, all of it. I just stayed away. That must have been incredibly hard. Oh, it was, yeah. It was like, you see it on train spotting, you know, like when they're going through it, I felt it's like, it's, it's in your bones, it's horrible. It's the worst feeling in the world. It had to be done. It had to be done and I did it. Mm. So that is when I knew that this is it, like, and then after a couple of months, I thought, I can't live in Newcastle. I love my family, like, now, because we get on and stuff, we're close. There's just too many bad memories there for me. And I was like, I need to go now. I need to go back to London. I can do this. I'm strong enough. And I came back and I turned up at Look Ahead Victoria. I'd had two nights on the streets. I did actually relapse as soon as I landed back in London. As soon as you hit the people that you know, it's like, hey, oh, do you want to pray? Do you want to pray? And you fall for it. And then I, yeah. I, I turned up at LA Vic again in the October and I was like really bad chest infection because it had been snowing really bad that year where I'd been sleeping. And um, they sent me to the doctor. They sent me to the passage house. It was cast. They bent over backwards and got me back in the hostel then. I met my children's father and I found out I was having twins in the January. And that relationship ended badly, like after three right. years. But I've got the twins and they're amazing and I love them. How old are they now? 12, nearly 13. Since they've been born, have you been in one place or have no. you moved around? No, so when I left... That this hostel, unfortunately, because I got more heavily pregnant and we had to avoid complications at all costs because of the fact I've got HIV as well, so we can't risk yeah. any bleeds, etc. So they moved me out there about seven months ago and I moved into a um, temporary B&B at Lancaster Gate. We were in there for a few weeks and then we moved into a flat in Pimlico where we stayed for two years and then my ex-partner cheated on me, broke my heart. I fell apart, moved back to Newcastle with the twins. That didn't work out because I was like mentally de- like going backwards, depressed and feeling abandoned and feeling it down and can't trust no one. I ended up taking drugs again, like not heroin or crack. I started taking speed instead and I was drinking a lot. And then social services got involved again. It was like, oh, because when I first had the twins, social services had to be involved because of what had happened with Jack. But the judge even said, this girl needs a pat on the back and you should never put her through that because, like, she's proved she can do what she needs to do. So we we won that victory and everything. But then because I went off the rails after my ex broke my heart, should we say, they had to get back involved. And I thought I'd be clever and thought, well, if I move from Newcastle to London, then I can escape that and then we can just pick up where we left off, go back into the flat, everything will be gravy. But it didn't really work out like that. So my children's paternal grandmother said, why don't you move to Wallasey, which is a little town on Merseyside. So we moved here in 2013, just me and the twins. And that life is no longer, it's gone. It's it's chapter closed. Like life is spun around 360 degrees. I can't even explain the transformation since then. Yeah. 
So since 2013, so you're now nine years living in Merseyside. Yeah. And did the grandmother, the consistency of her having around, having support, did that help? Yeah, it helped for a bit, but things have come out and there's been struggles happening. Yeah. So there's there's not a good, it's not a good time at the moment and we're actually moving back to London. Sure. But at the time, right. it was what I needed. I needed that stability. I needed mm. to move away from everything I knew to be able to mm. to learn because I was chaotic. But now it's like I've been in a place that's slower. So it's given me a foundation. Like it's been able to give me a space where I can break down who I used to be and create who I'm meant to be. It's like, I believe I've always meant to be in London and I still believe I should be in London, but I think I needed to come here to be able to learn what I've learned to now be able to go back and succeed again. Mm. They say that the average age of a woman who is sleeping on the streets, it's like 41 or 43, some horrific age where their life ends. Did you ever come close to that? Yeah, a couple of times through substance abuse and through cold weather. Like I was admitted into um, the hospital just by Euston, uh, the training hospital, because my whole throat had swollen up with the cold and I was like, couldn't breathe even that time that I turned up to look ahead that second time when I said look I need to come back after getting clean just before I fell pregnant with the twins even then it I felt like if I had stayed out another night I could have possibly not woken up you know and I've known people that have died and it's like there's so many people out there that passed away and I think if I hadn't got out of that life when I did, I probably wouldn't be here now either. And I'm 38, I'm 39 this year. And I think that it probably would have took my life as well. So, I mean, my ex, Jack's dad, he had a heroin overdose two years, three years ago in that life. So, yeah, I just think it's sad. that. But even it's not just while you're in like rough sleeping it's like that aftercare as well you go in somewhere and it's not equipped to know how to handle detox or they don't have that right service that wraparound service to give you that one-on-one care you're going to need so people are slipping away they're falling through the gaps Mm. Kerry um what's the situation with Jack have you got a relationship with him so he came and he found me in November, not last November, the number, November before. It was literally just going into lockdown 3.0, I think it was. So it was a lot of video chat and trying to build a relationship through social media. It's it's obviously going to be difficult. It's always going to be difficult. We're still getting to know each other. Um, we have our little lover's tiff, shall we say. <laughs> I'm hoping we'll get to a good place. Um yeah, it's never going to be easy. It's always going to be difficult. I think there's a lot because of the circumstances as to why I'm always going to get blamed to a degree. And because I've yeah. got children now, it's like, why didn't you do that for me? I feel that's, I feel like I've got a lot of blame to take. And I feel like sometimes I'm just, I need to remember he's, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, shall we say. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, I guess all you can do is consistently be there, right? Whenever he needs to be angry. Yeah. It's just, yeah. And hope that someday he'll understand it. I'm sure he will as he gets older. I think me, I need to understand that as well. The fact that I have to remember he has a right 
to to feel the way that he feels you know and as a as a grown-up I need to remember that I think I'm the problem in the whole complication to be fair because Mm. yeah I'm scared of losing people and I'm scared of losing him again I guess Kerry, what change would you still like to make moving forward for yourself or the world around you? Yeah, see, I'm all about um, system change, complete system change. Yeah. You know, everything's interlinked. Like all society's problems, they have a connection somewhere to each other. I share my story with people or like online. I've got my own podcast and stuff. So by doing that, I want to be able to bring that empathetic understanding you know like there's people behind these stigmatic labels so I want to be the change I want to see basically I want to go out and show people actually you need to look at these people and see they're just a human being like you that that could happen to you you could get a shocking diagnosis one day you could get a letter from your landlord one day saying you've been evicted or you could lose everything you've got we're normal people and it's like you just become accustomed Mm. to that life but you shouldn't have to live that life sort of thing so yeah there's so much that I want to do I just in all of it I want to be the change I want to see and Kerry what would you say to not not asking you to you know be a spokesperson for people who who've had to sleep rough but for those people who see people who are rough sleeping you know what is the best thing they can do talk to them have a conversation this longer than 30 seconds like or ask them what they want from the shop don't just go in and buy them a sandwich stop ask them can I get you anything from the shop they might buy me a Dr Pepper well I don't really like Dr Pepper do you know what I mean so it's just yeah. going to get wasted it's giving you agency isn't it yeah 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 so, you wouldn't just buy something for your mate it's, without asking them what they want it's just what do you want in your yeah. sandwich I'll have cheese please I'm a vegetarian choice it all comes down to choice but I guarantee you, if you ask a homeless person that question of like, what's the worst thing about being homeless? And they'll tell you it's the feeling of being ignored, of not feeling like a human being, like feeling you're not worthy of human interaction. Yeah, buy a hot chocolate, but why not buy two and sit down and have a little convo and actually see that this person has fought for your country or gone to hell and back, like lost parents at a young age, or yeah. you look at some people that have been on the streets for 30, 40 years and you just think, where have they come from? You know, and they've fallen through this system and that mm. system and they've just been left. And you think the capabilities that they've actually got though, if you have a conversation with them, you'll see they could probably change the world. Do you know what I mean? It's like they're getting abandoned and forgotten about, but yet they're actually valuable people that need to be listened to and need to be heard. I know there's still people on the streets now. There's a young girl still out there and it breaks my heart. And she was always in a bad place then. I know she's probably not progressed and she's younger than me. And I know that it's just sad because if I saw her, she'd remember me. That would give her that hope. And that's not me trying to be big headed. It's just that I know that you have to see to believe that it's possible. And that's what I mean by I want to be the change I want to see. So I want other people to see that it is possible to actually overcome. Well, listen, I wish you all the best. Thank you. I'm sure that you are going to help so many people and you've helped us so much today. Thank, um, you. thank you so much, Kerry. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you so much 
to Kerry Douglas for her honesty and her vulnerability in sharing this story. I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful to her. As I said, Kerry is doing so well now. Um, she's a certified substance abuse counsellor. She's studying for her degree. She has a book called Gutter to Glory that you can get. And she has a podcast as well called Conversations with Kerry. And all of the links to those things are in the show notes if you want to go check them out. Now, listen, I appreciate we have covered a lot of heavy ground today. So if you've been affected by what you've heard or if you know someone who's been affected by the topics raised in this episode, there is always help. The Samaritans can be reached on 116123 and check the show notes for details outside the UK and Ireland. And also, if you want to check out St. Mungo's, um, if you want to look into doing some voluntary work for them yourself or if you want to just see the work they do, you can reach them at www.mungos.org. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes if you'd like to help them in any way. Also, if you liked this conversation with Kerry, there's a couple of other ones I'd like you to listen to from Changes of the Past. There's an episode with a man called Paddy in our first series, which gives a male's perspective on homelessness, which is deeply moving. And I think about Paddy often, (laughs) still to this day. Um, So you can go and check that out. Also, Kerry mentioned that she had ADHD and I did an episode with my husband, Tom, a few weeks ago, all about his adult diagnosis of ADHD, which has had one of the biggest reactions we've ever had to an episode of Changes. So that might interest you as well. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Please share the podcast far and wide uh, if you think that people will be interested in it. And I will be back next Monday for a St. Paddy's Day special with Irish academic and author and all-round brilliant woman, Emma Beery. She wrote the books Don't Touch My Hair and What White People Can Do Next from Allyship to Coalition. And yeah, you are going to love hearing from her. Thank you for listening. Changes is produced by Louise Mason. See you next time. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.